Yeah, let's, let's begin by reading from, uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Look at verses 9 through 14 in uh, the Gospel of John. He was the true light, which coming into the world, it lightens every man. And that's the word anthropos. We get anthropology from that. That means men and women. That's uh, Debbie as much as Jack or uh, Jenny as much as Stan. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world, by and large, the vast majority, did not know him. He came into his own, and those who were his own, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not receive him. But as many as to each individual who does then and now receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word, remember back in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus before the beginning of the universe. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. And John literally saw his glory at the transfiguration event later. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, this is week two of a two-week Christmas mini-series that deals with Christmas according to the Gospel of John. And I want you to think about this as truth for Christmas and all the other days of the year, too. And the real, real meaning of Christmas is found in this passage in John, namely, uh, the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. So we're saying here as... Christianity has from day one that Jesus is not just another preacher. He's not just another prophet. He is the incarnation of God in human form. He's the issue. He's the issuer of eternal life. Think about it. The baby wrapped up like a dead man, uh, Amber, ends up dying on the cross, dying for our sins and rising again. So we're going to look at the last part of the prologue of John, Christmas according to the Gospel of John. But let's pray for our teachability to God's Word, and also, as is our custom, and we do it with joy, let's pray for those who protect and serve us, both military, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, Zane, if you would, pray for us in that direction, okay? Thank you, Zane. You've heard Jeff Foxworthy, you know, had, became famous with the line of, uh, you might be a redneck if you paid more for your truck than you paid for your house, things like that. Well, to warm up your capacity for abstract thought before we dive into the prologue of John, you might be a preacher if. You work almost every weekend in most religious holidays. They didn't tell me that at seminary. I was a total shock when I got out of, in the field. You never preached on TV, but only because your wife was afraid you might slip off and break your leg. I was going to get up on that TV in the living room, and she wouldn't let me do it. So, Yeah, I don't mind explaining them. You literally believe every day should be Pastor Appreciation Day. I, I learned to believe that. You realize that saying a friendly, how you doing, to some people... You happen to bump into it at Walmart, the post office can result in a three-hour-long conversation right in the middle of the Walmart parking lot. It happens all the time. And finally, 
You might be a preacher if most of the people in your church call you Brad or Pastor B, but all of your students at Cameron University call you Dr. Doom. It's <laughs> a lot of fun, actually. Christmas, according to the Gospel of John. Now, you're going to notice in your overstuffed to overflowing bulletin, there's a separate set of notes that I'm not going to read to you that I hope you won't read this morning as we're looking at John 1, 1 through 18, but it's been a couple of years since we put this essential material in there, and I've had several people over the years say thank you. I, you know, I've heard some of those things and didn't know kind of how to respond to those. So uh, that's for no extra charge. And also for no extra charge, as you know, when we finish today in here and uh, Super Sunday School finishes and the nursery finishes and the toddler class finishes, we'll be done for the day. However, uh, after I finish in, in closing prayer, we're going to give you an opportunity to win and in fact, uh, Shauna and James have, uh, there are, uh, probably easier for James to stand up, but if you'll stand up, uh, Ron Miller and Red Dirt Apparel have designed a special 2018 TBF Christmas t-shirt, and you're gonna, we're gonna have a short, but fast, a short, fast, and fun contest of, uh, trying to decide which three of you today will win one of those t-shirts. So say good things happen when you come to church. And we actually have six t-shirts, so we're going to make this thing last two whole weeks. So next week we're going to do the same thing, even though it's going to be after Christmas. So don't leave after the closing prayer until we give you a chance. And because Ron made these shirts, and also since he's an accountant, I'm going to ask you to come up and help me figure out who wins this contest, because it's going to take a little math skill that I don't really have. Okay? So let's talk a, a word about the context of our passage. We're looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then the content specifically today, verses 9 through uh, 14, which we'll be looking at. And in general, the uh, the context for, for John is the Bible. And we talk about this a lot. But trust me, a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, don't know this. The Bible's a big book. It's only got how many parts? Uh, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before Christmas. And the New Testament is part of the Bible written right after Christmas. And the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible has one major premise. Uh, everybody dies, and everybody sins. And most of the Old Testament heroes, uh, I don't think Kirk Cox's church in Nebraska, most of the Old Testament heroes wouldn't be allowed to teach Sunday school at your church today because they're pretty slimy. But God can save all kinds of slimy human raw material. And in the Old Testament, he promises he's going to send a Savior. In the second part of the Bible, let's call that the New Testament, there's one major premise, one major promise. The major premise is Jesus of Nazareth, that baby is born and wrapped up like a dead man in uh, that gold-entrusted cradle, right? That was like an animal's feeding trough. In fact, is the one who was promised, and he's coming back. He's paid for our sins as the lamb, and he's coming back as the lion. So we live for him now with that amazing expectation, right? So that's the broad context. So when you think about Christmas, really Christmas is... The beginning of the fulfillment of this promise that God has given from Genesis 3.15 throughout the whole Old Testament that the Savior's coming, but he comes in some surprising ways, doesn't he? Now, that's the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the very first part there, the prologue, the organized introduction, the purpose statement. I always like to say, Dustin, the key to the Gospel of John hangs at the back door, because at the very end of the body of the book, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, 
John says, many other things Jesus also did that are not written in this book. I'm not telling you everything I, I know about Jesus. But these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. That he's the Savior, the one the Old Testament said was coming. And that believing you have life in his name. So that's the context for our passage. Now the content. Now, don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but this passage is organized in a very particular way. You can easily miss, and you don't have to know this to understand the passage, but it's pretty cool when you see it. It's in an inverted parallelism parallelism form where the very first thing, verses 1 and 2 of these 18, uh, this passage with 18 verses, the very first thing lines up with the very last thing on purpose. And the second thing lines up with the second and the last thing, and it moves toward a center. It's like it's moving up a staircase and back down to emphasize verses 12 and 13. Now, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, and verses 15 through 18, we paired them up based on that structure. Today, we're going to look at this center, central portion, verses 9 through 14. We're going to notice verses 9 and 11 link up nicely like twins with verse 14. Then we're going to focus on the very center component, verses 12 through 13. So when you do that, you see Jesus, the Word of God, the incarnation of God in human form in verse 9 through 11 and verse 14. And then we're going to see the emphasis and the real uh, epicenter of this passage is the affirmation Jesus is the Savior, the object of saving faith. So look at verses 9 through 11. And let me read my paraphrase today. Jesus was and is the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man, every person, male and female. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, by and large. Individual exceptions, yeah, but by and large, no. He came into his own, and yet those who were his own, the Jewish people, did not receive him. Light's very important part of this passage, Dustin. Go back to verse 8, the verse before 9. Talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the light. He just came to testify about the light. Drop down to verse 7. John the Baptist came as a witness to testify about what? About the light. Jesus is the light. So that all might believe through him. Go back to verse 4 and 5. In the word, Jesus Christ was life. Not biology life, bios, but spiritual life, zoe. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light keeps on shining in the darkness, even though it looked, humanly speaking, like he lost when he got crucified, and the darkness did not grasp it, either intellectually or physically. Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the victor, not the victim. Look at uh, verse 9 again. Jesus was the true light who coming into the world. The word world is the Greek word cosmos, and we get the word cosmos for kind of the universe. We use that in modern English. But the word cosmos in the New Testament is used 185 times. I counted them all this week. No, I didn't really count them all. I just read multiple sources that said that. I'm going to trust them on that. Uh, and this word is used by John more than anybody else in the New Testament. He uses it 105 times. He used it 78 times in this gospel, 24 times in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and 3 times in the book of Revelation. In contrast, Paul, who writes 13 New Testament books, only uses cosmos 47 times. But here's the deal. This is what you want to take home, Jack. Uh, cosmos, the way John uses it, doesn't refer to the planet Earth. doesn't refer to this rock that goes around the sun. 
In fact, you can use the word to mean that, but the main Greek word for the planet is the word, is pronounced gay, but it look, it's G-E in English, and is pr- pronounced, anglicized, G, and we get geology from the Greek word that specifically and only means the planet. Cosmos refers to the human race living on this planet as flawed, finite, mortal, fallen, and estranged from God because of our sins. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like, I am in the world, but not... And he says in the upper room discourse to the 11 believers, Judas leaves the room, and then Jesus says, you guys are in the world, but you're not. The world in John, the world here in the first chapter of John, isn't the planet, it's the human race that lives on this planet. And we're flawed, we're finite, we're mortal, uh, we're sinful, we're estranged from God. We desperately need a Savior. And that's the plan all along. You know, God so loved the world, he gave, so loved the world. So loved the domain of fallen humanity, gave his son. So, because of the grace of God in saving us through Christ, we have a categorical change in us. We're no longer of the world, but we live in the world. Jesus was and is the true light, who coming into the world, the domain of sinful men and women, enlightens every person, male and female. Not in the sense that everybody gets saved, not in the sense everybody's regenerated, but in the sense that the light of his reality changes the whole equation, the whole human equation. The light of his reality affects and enlightens everybody in the human race. Uh, through his incarnation, all he is, all he did radiates now and then throughout this fallen cosmos and works in seeking hearts to lead to eternal salvation. And this is for all kinds of people, male, female, rich and poor, doesn't regard doesn't matter what color, country, or culture. I mean in the Gospel of John we're emphasized that Nicodemus, this very famous Jewish religious teacher, considered to be the best religious teacher of his day, who's convinced he might be able to earn salvation by being a really religious Jewish person Jesus says, that ain't going to work. You need a whole different birth. You need a spiritual birth. And yet, immediately after that, Jesus interacts with a, this, the opposite of humanity. A woman, not a man, very poor, not rich like Nicodemus, not famous but infamous, very immoral, very irreligious. She's been married and divorced five times, I think, because of her own unfaithfulness, and now she's living with her boyfriend. And Jesus tells the woman at the well, Basically the same thing he told Nicodemus with a different metaphor because she's got a bucket in her hand trying to get some water. If you knew who it was who was talking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water, give you eternal life. So Jesus comes to change the world and he is and was successful in that. But think of this. This is pretty amazing. It's pretty shocking. We're kind of almost too close to it. He was in the world. He voluntarily came from heaven to interact with fallen humanity as a human being, albeit God in human form. And the world, had he was the creator of the cosmos, of the whole thing. And yet the world didn't know him, by and large. Now the word know, gnosko, New Testament, yada, Hebrew, is a relational term, not just an intellectual term. So you read things like, everybody sitting down, Adam knew his wife, and they had a baby nine months later. We're not, not saying he knew her name or something. He, he had an intimate connection with her, you know. Uh, it's in the world, but the world didn't know him. Came into his own Jewish people. Most of them didn't receive him. 
Yeah, this is not just knowing what his name is. This is knowing him relationally. And you look at this, you know, diagram, you know, the top part of that we see almost every week, but the bottom part of that is, you know, the very bottom long rectangle, that's the basis of God's whole salvific plan. It goes back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where God promises to Abraham a land, seed, and a blessing. Then uh, 500 years after Abraham, we've got this nation of Israel coming out of an Egyptian incubator, Egyptian slavery, over a million people. And on top of that baseline unconditional covenant, we have the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law is spirituality on training wheels, waiting for the Savior to come, anticipates uh, it's partial preliminary points to Christ, and that's the way the people of God operated until he came, and now everything's changed. We're in the Old Testament covenant. All those symbols have been fulfilled. Uh, Murray, you remember taking uh, Introduction to World Religion at Cameron University. Our textbook told us there were 36,000 Christian denominations. Debbie, that's a lot. But there aren't 36,000 different versions of Christianity. There's only one version, okay, Some are so far to the left, they don't believe it anymore. Some are so far to the right, they teach salvation by works. But the vast majority, at least historically, of all 36,000 denominations, center on the death and resurrection of Christ, Him as the issue and the issue of eternal life to all who believe. And none of us sacrifice animals, even though, according to the Mosaic Covenant, you have to have a physical central sanctuary and sacrifice animals to please God. Why don't we sacrifice animals on this side of the cross? What did those sacrifices anticipate and point to? The once for all. Hebrews says, once for all he died for our sins. Tetelestai, it is finished, paid for, uh, mission accomplished kind of thing. So this is awesome stuff. But watch this. Because we're so used to these statements, I don't think they impact us like maybe they, they should, because he's the true light. He was in the world. He made the world, but the world didn't know him. Verse 11, those who were his own uh, did not receive him. And it's so sad, and it's so tragic. But the thing about it is, verse 12 and 13 shines positive light, gives us some good news. But we're not going to look at that right now. We're not looking at that. By the way, I forgot that slide. You know, Those who were his own did not receive him. They should have. They had all this data from their Old Testament that they all... Uh, revered so much, and yet Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they talk about me. Moses is all about me, but you don't see that. So you can actually have the scriptures. I remember we did a short series on Jehovah's Witness theology, and then like the next week after we did that for a couple weeks, somebody said, well, Pastor Brad, we had Jehovah's Witnesses come to our house, and they were quoting the Bible. So, uh, Satan tempts Christ three times at the end. What, what does he quote three times? Oprah? What does he quote? He quotes scripture. I mean, if, if people quote scripture all the time. It's, you know, they miss the point. So we're going to give you a little delayed gratification, which is always good for spirituality, right? Let's drop down to verse 14. Why am I dropping down to verse 14? Because that's the literary twin of verses 9, 10, and 11. That's why. And this really is... Christmas according to the Gospel of John. And the Word. Now, why are we calling Jesus the Word? Not the written Word of God, your Bible, but the living Word of God, the incarnation of God. Because that's where this whole passage started. Go back to verse 1. In the beginning, before the beginning, the Word, a title for Jesus, already was. And He was with God the Father. He was different, a different person than God the Father. And He was God, meaning He was full deity, just like the Father. 
He was in the beginning with God the Father. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that's come into being. Drop down to verse 14. And that person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word, the Light, the Life, Jesus Christ, became flesh without ceasing to be deity and dwelt among us. And in fact, the Greek text says tabernacled, lived in a tent among us. And we, now we is first person plural, which means the human author who is including himself, John the Apostle is writing this. He's saying we, and I think he's thinking not just generally we saw Jesus glory by his perfect righteous life, which you did see that. I think he's thinking of a specific event where Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus. Remember the transfiguration. And we, Peter, James, and John, saw his glory, glory as of the unique member of the Trinity in his visible human form, full of grace and truth. Go back to verse 14 there. The word became flesh. It's one of my favorite New Testament words. The word flesh, Jack, and I'm not talking about you, Jack. we got two Jacks here. And by the way, when you're in an airport, if you see either one of those Jacks, you're in an airport, about to get on an airplane, don't shout out, Hi, Jack! Hi! Hi, Jack! They're going to think you're going to try to hijack the plane. That's another joke I have to explain. At Dallas Seminary, I know they taught this at Hillsdale too to James. If you have to explain your jokes or illustrations, don't use them. But I do it anyway, you know. So anyway, yeah. But, uh, Jack, watch this. This word flesh is S-A-R-X. Sarks. It's just fun to say. It's, yeah, uh, Sigma Rho, uh, Sigma Alpha Rho, Kasi, which is my favorite Greek word, Kasi. It's just a great word. Uh, and here it refers to the flesh, the humanity of Jesus, right? The word who was before the beginning, who's the second person of Trinity, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. One person with two natures, the unique person of the whole universe. And that's the way he uses it here. And that's kind of easy. That makes sense to flesh be humanity. Paul, in his epistles, uses the term sarks a whole lot. And it's quite often translated flesh, but it doesn't mean humanity per se, Robbie. It means the real problem of humanity. It's got this innate tendency that always expresses itself to be sinful, selfish, and lazy. Okay, you don't have to you don't have to train them to say no or me or mine. Uh, you can do this every every Sunday. Just as the first toddler walks into the toddler room, he or she will go and play with a toy. When the second toddler comes in, especially if it's a boy, will look at the other forty nine toys, say no, I want the one she's got, and go right over there every single time. You don't teach them to do that; they do that automatically. So when Paul uses the word sarks. He invariably uses it for the innate nature to be sinful, selfish, and lazy. And guess what? When God regenerates the believing sinner, he doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on believers, which is why he says in Galatians, to believers, not to unbelievers. You wouldn't tell an unbeliever to do this. Walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh is the way it's almost always translated. But that's the word sarks. And there doesn't mean your fleshy part of your body or just your human body or even sins of the flesh, sexual kind of stuff, which is what we tend to think. It would include that, but it's talking specifically about your tendency to be sinful, selfish, and lazy, not necessarily just in that one area at all. So I think it's important to realize that you got a battle on your hands. Billy Graham had a battle on his hands. It, it never goes away that you don't have this tendency to be sinful, selfish, and lazy. That's one of the glories of being absent from the body face to face with the Lord. We'll be able to enjoy eternity without a sin nature. Okay? 
But it's always, uh, it's always an ongoing struggle. And then it doesn't change when you get ordained or you get old or you get a seminary degree or something like that. And if you think I'm about to confess some horrible sin, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'll lie about that too. But we all do those things, right? But here's the thing. I thought this was cool. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Very generic translation there, Kirk. That means to live in a tent. Now, you guys know the tabernacle, as opposed to the temple, the tabernacle was the portable tent-like building that Moses and Israel built almost immediately after they left Egypt. At the end of the book of Exodus, they followed the instructions. They're on their way to the promised land, which they don't enter for various reasons, insubordination. But they build this tent, and the glory of God goes into the back part of the building that that tent covers, the, the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle, specifically the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and later the temple, was the place where, in under the Old Covenant, God manifested the outward expression of his reality, his being, his character. Now we're told that in the same way the tabernacle slash temple contained the glory of God, the body of Jesus Christ contained the glory of God. I mean, we're talking about Jesus was God, the second member of the ontological trinity in human form. You can't do that in a laboratory. It beyond, it, it's beyond a mechanism I can think of how that happens, but that's exactly who he was. And that's essential because as Riley says in his footnote, which is so well done, I, that's my favorite study Bible, uh, only the God-man could be an adequate savior. For he must be human in order to be able to suffer and die for our sins. And he must be God to make that death effective as a payment for sin and to have eternal benefit kind of thing. So people who think they're going to uh, Christianize America by watering down the uniqueness of Christ, they're only Americanizing Christianity. And it's not going to work. And when, the, when the bullets start flying, nobody's going to die for another prophet. People die for Jesus because he's the son of God. And people today will be killed for that faith in places like Myanmar, in Sudan, parts of China probably. That's happening right now. North Korea for sure. It's, it's that important. Now let's get, so, and here's my diagram of verse 18. You know, you've got the ontological trinity there. God the Son, S, is God, full deity, but he's a different person from the Father or the Holy Spirit. John 1, 14, the Word, the person of Jesus, took on humanity, this rectangle. I've lost my, I've lost my laser pointer again. If you want, you want to pray for me, pray that I don't lose my next laser pointer, okay? I mean, I, I've gone through 15 of these things. It's, it's terrible. If I'd kept all those things and sold them, I could retire already, but they're, they're gone. They just, they walk away. They grow legs and walk away. That's the one thing about evolution that is true. Laser pointers, the ones people give me, grow legs and walk away. But, so otherwise I'd use a laser pointer. But since, and by the way, isn't that tree sweet? Okay. Now, I, I, Jeremiah 10 is not talking about Christmas trees. But if, if there was any way I could read that into that, I would do it just to get rid of that. Just so you'll know. I'm going out of town right after this for a couple of days. So, you know, you get over it. But, um Kirk, don't do this when you're preaching in front of, unless you've been there for 30 years, then you can get away with it, okay? The rectangle stands for the person of Christ. The circles refer to his two natures. No overlap, no separation, they meet on the tangent. One person, two natures, full deity, full humanity. Nobody else is like this. 
Nobody could do this, but he's got to be that to do what he claimed to be able to do, which he did, and uh, you need to love it. Let's look at the center portion of this passage. The good, good, good part, verse 12 through 13. And again, you know, it's so such a downer sneaking into this thing. Uh, he was in the world. world was made through him. world didn't know him. Came to his own. Those of his own didn't receive him. So sad. But, here's the good part. But as many, every individual exception, doesn't matter what color, country, culture, generation, denomination, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to receive? It means to believe in his name. That's the same thing. I love it, man. Uh, who were born, not of blood. That's actually plural in Greek. Not of bloods. Mommy and daddy's bloodline. There's no such biological birth. He, uh, we're not born biologically when we're born again. It's a spiritual birth. Not of the will of the flesh. The sarks hear the humanity because he's using that in that sense in verse 13, 14. Nor the will of man, but of God. And you gotta love these verses. Let's talk about them. This is the central affirmation. Here's my paraphrase. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be children of God. That is to all who believe in his name. 100%. These are born not of bloods. Let's make it bloods. That's what the Greek text says. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again, born from above. To receive, notice that. In the very first part, as many as received him is the same thing as believing. When you receive, you have believed. If you believed, you have received. It's not two separate things. Anthony, it's, it's two aspects of the same thing. And really a direct overlap there. Now, what does it mean to believe in his name? If you have mental assent that this person's name was Jesus, and he was called the Christ, is that saving faith? No, saving faith isn't mental assent to historical facts or just the nomenclature that's used for Jesus. It's Active, receptive trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Who and what he is. His name represents who he is and what he did. I, I think one really nice, concrete illustration of saving faith, Jesus calls this guy, refers to him as having faith after he heals him, is the leper. Now, long story short, leprosy in the Old Testament covenant time, and Jesus is living under the Old Testament covenant, right? Even though it's New Testament material, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, wasn't Hansen syndrome, which is what we call leprosy today. It was like the worst type of spiritual discipline God would inflict on somebody who did some really bad, deliberate stuff under the Old Testament covenant in Israel. Child molesters and stuff like that. These people had this horrific disease that forced them out of the camp. And this guy, and we don't know what he did. Maybe he was a mass murderer. Maybe he did something some, it was, it was bad. And he's facing physical discipline under the Old Covenant. He walks up to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, I'll try to clean up my act, because he knows he can't. He's beyond help. If you're willing, you make me clean. What does Jesus say? Man, I'm sorry, but you're beyond help. I am willing, be cleansed. Saving faith is like the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. But to the one who, this is Romans 4, 5. But to the one who doesn't work, or doesn't act like this is, let's make a deal. I'll give you something, Jesus, you give me everlasting life. That would be a well of a deal, but it's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. But to the one, this is Romans 5, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, like the leper, his, meaning the ungodly person's faith, is reckoned as righteousness. We're not saved by doing stuff for God or making promises to God. We're saved as sinners, recognizing our guilt and our inability, throwing ourselves on his mercy, daring to receive him for salvation and trust him for it. And then... He doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gives you a whole new capacity 
to serve him as Lord and expects you to and calls you to and will enable you to and give you input even at your church so you can make some strides in that area. But it's all about receiving or believing. It's not mental assent. It's active, receptive trust. Let's do a real quick survey of a couple of major passages. Ninety times. That's a nine and a zero in the Gospel of John. We're told the terms of receiving eternal life is believing in Christ, believing in his name, trusting, receiving Christ. Let's look at some examples. Look at chapter 3, very famous. Jesus and Nicodemus, dedicated to the proposition he's going to save himself by being a very religious, righteous person. Jesus says, at, look at 3.14, As Moses looked up the serpent in the wilderness, this brass serpent, they, the children of Israel had been bitten by snakes. God said, put a brass serpent on a pole, everybody who looks at the one look, will clear out the snake bite. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in Numbers, even so, the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. For God the Father, the author of the plan, loved the world, fallen humanity, despite our sinfulness and our, our frailties and our uh, depravity, he loved us. He gave his unique son to die on the cross to pay for our sins and rise again. That whoever, in the Greek says, that all of the ones who believe shall not perish like a fire, but have as a present abiding possession everlasting life for God. And not send the son into the world to judge the world who already stood condemned, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Christ is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. Look at verse 36. You hear about 316 a lot, but how about John 336? The one who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That's angel as much as Dustin. It's not just males. The one who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the call to believe will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Go to 640. I love 640. You've got to memorize John 640. It's incredible. Jesus, this is Jesus talking, okay? Jesus, who knows how this works better than even Chuck Swindoll, <laughs> and he's pretty good. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, you know, the architect of the plan of salvation, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Now, you know what you need to do with verses like that? you got to put your name in the blank if you're a believer. Watch this. This will of my Father, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise up Sonia Skinner, Sonia Heidler Skinner on the last day. Jesus says that, okay? That's better than even Billy Graham saying it. Or Chuck Swindoll, right? That's awesome, man. you got to love that one. Look, Go back to chapter 5. Look at verse 39. The Gospel of John is the evangelistic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are discipleship manuals. This is the gospel that tells you about the theology of salvation. Look at chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures, you unbelieving, Christ-rejecting, religious people who know all about the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them, by obeying them, you have everlasting life. But it's these that talk about me. And you, the problem is, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have everlasting life. You don't really want it. You've distorted it because of your religiosity. Look at verse 45. Do you not think that I will accuse you before the Father? But the one really accuses you is Moses, you know, the author of the first five books that they esteem so highly, in whom you've set your hope. For if you really believed Moses, what he really meant by that, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what it really means in Moses, 
you're not going to believe my words either, right? Go to chapter 8, verse 23. Ninety times in the Gospel of John, we're told the terms of salvation is believing, pistuo, which means active receptive trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 8, verse 23. And he's saying to them, you are from below. These Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that are uh, castigating him as he claims to be the light of the world, uh, that humanly speaking look like the most religious, righteous people you'd ever meet. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world of fallen, sinful, flawed human beings. Therefore I told you that you would die in your sins. But he doesn't finish there, Dustin, he's got a semicolon there. For unless you believe that I am he, the Christ, unless you receive me, right, Bobby, is this beautiful? You know what your mom would say about this? Isn't that, ain't that beautiful? Ain't that beautiful? Yes, Martha, it is beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? She used to say stuff like that. Unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. True then, true now. Go to chapter 11. I read this at almost every funeral I, I do. Because I love this passage. This is uh, Martha and Jesus interacting outside the tomb of Lazarus. Chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the basis of resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I sure have. I have believed. He knows she's believed. He wants her to confess that publicly. So all this crowd that's waiting to see what he's going to do at the tomb is going to hear it. I have believed you're the Christ. You're the one promised to be the Lamb of God to pay for the sins. The Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 12 again. But as many as received him, what does that mean? To believe on his name, uh, are born, and this is so cool because he's emphasizing this is something God does for you. You're not doing anything for God. This Salvation is something you receive. It's not something you can achieve. The day that God convicted David Bearden of his sin, he came in. He was so contrite. I thought, he must have killed somebody with his bare hands. He must have... Uh, done something horrible, but God had convicted him so deeply, man. All he wanted to do was, what do I got to do? You don't do anything. You have to trust Jesus. Just receive Jesus. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, one of the most memorable days of my life was seeing David come to faith. Look at for, and I've been doing this for a while, like 37 years. I was doing it seven years in Shreveport before I, they, Shreveport knew they needed to train me to really go to a functional church to a normative church, because I was, I was in the wilderness in Shreveport for almost seven years. It was, it was tough. It was not easy, you know. But, uh, I guess I wasn't in the will of God. You know, God doesn't use anything. Doesn't waste anything. The good, bad, and it, isn't there a verse that says that? All things work together. Is that in the Bible somewhere? Or is that in the Bhagavad Gita? No, it's not in the Bhagavad Gita. Who were born, I love this. Look at these three negations. Those who receive Christ are born spiritually. They're given everlasting life. And if it's everlasting, it's not everlasting until you sin again. It's everlasting. Or if it's until you sin again, it's not everlasting. Not of bloods. Not of mommy and daddy. Not biology. Not of the will of man, uh, of the human person. There's none of the will of man, and that's individual person there. Uh, not of human willpower, human merit, human efforts, human works, human religiosity, and then not of the will of man, humanly, religiously intoxicated species, homosexual, homo, not homosexuals, but homo sapiens, them too, you know. Uh, but uh, homo sapiens is a religiously intoxicated species, uh, 
uh, one of Darwin's friends said. Uh, but the problem with religion is they all are attempts to try to climb up and get closer to God. It doesn't matter what, what, what religion. They're all things we've got to do to earn something, good karma, or, uh, you know, uh, 79 virgins, if you're a Muslim or whatever it is, in heaven. All of them make salvation a do-it-yourself project. It's only the biblical writ that says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, the uh, law cannot save, but it shows us we need a Savior, and there's only one Savior, the God-man Savior. So all the world religions say, do, 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 and you might earn your way. Christianity says, you can't do anything, but God will do it for you. And then at the end of the work of the cross, he says, it is finished, which is one word, Sydney, uh, telestai, which means paid in full. They put it on bills of sale after you paid your bill. you got to love that. Take this to heart. We've been looking at Christmas according to John, just the very first part of John. We're looking at the theology of Christmas, and we're seeing the real, real meaning of Christmas it has nothing to do with ho, 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 what Santa says. It's all about who, 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 who Jesus is. You can teach that to your kids, and they'll remember that. Let's enjoy Santa, let's enjoy the gifts, but Christmas is not about ho, 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 what Santa says, it's all about who, 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 who Jesus is. Or you can say, this isn't copyrighted yet, when I do retire, I'm going to copyright all this stuff, so use it now, because if you use my stuff when I'm gone, I'm going to sue you, uh, in spirit, Christian love, because I'll use it, I'll use it for uh, for underprivileged children, any money I get in my lawsuits will be used to help my grandkids, they're underprivileged children, they don't have enough stuff, you know. Uh, the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. So we're going to conclude in prayer. Then we're going to have a short contest so you can win a t-shirt. Okay? You good with that? Uh, not? Okay. We're going to do it anyway. But uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for being the author, the planner, the architect of salvation, for desiring in your grace to seek and save that which is lost. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking the role of the sendee, a subordinate role to be sent and do the work of redemption on the cross once for all and to validate it with your resurrection. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your process of being the activating agent in time of reception of eternal salvation by convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, of opening our hearts to see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerating those who believe. And help us... Uh, to be informed and motivated by all of these things, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we celebrate Christmas 2018, and give us a spirit of generosity as we celebrate this this wonderful holiday and the incarnation of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.